Ralphing Butter live from Netroots Nation in Chicago. We have spectacular, amazing, wonderful, inspiring guests for you today. And we're going to jump right in with our first guest. We are joined right now in Chicago at Netroots Nation live in person by Jamal Watkins of the NAACP. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Thank you for having me, Kristen. It is really, and, and I use the term an exciting time because anytime you're with activists, leaders, thought leaders, folks who are really pushing the envelope for our communities in the right way. It's exciting because in dark times in this country, we need more of what we're seeing here at Netroots and here in Chicago. I'm so glad you raised that because people are cynical. They're upset. They're reading the newspaper and there is so much doom. And so we've been exploring a little bit today hope and hope. And what's bringing you hope and change at the NAACP and here at Netroots that everybody should know about? Well, when I think about the NAACP and our organization, we're 114 years old. So just imagine, if you will, and I'm assuming that our elders and leaders 50 years ago, they were probably exhausted and said, ah, when is this ever going to end? And so what brings me and our organization hope is that, you know, there's this resilience that has to be in place because every year gets better in some way, even if it feels like you're facing another uphill battle. And so I would argue, even with some of the rollbacks we're seeing, we're not the United States of, say, the 1900s. We're not the United States of the 1950s or the 1980s. So we're not perfect, but we have made some great strides. The goal is to continue to build on that and continue to make sure that we don't lose sight, that we're getting better, even if on some days it feels like, you know, two steps forward, ten steps back. Yeah, for sure. And speaking of the getting better, the NAACP has a fabulous and powerful agenda. What are the top action areas this year in 2023 that people can get involved with helping push forward? So we are a volunteer structure, and so our leadership includes thousands of volunteer leaders under our chair of our board of directors, Leon Russell. And then we have a great staff leader in our president and CEO, Derek Johnson. But the focus is on three catalytic areas, I would argue, that are sort of a meta frame. And I'm using these big words to really say we focus in on racial equity civic engagement and supportive policies and institutions. But when you start to look underneath the hood in terms of priorities, there's so many policy areas that our board and our leadership voted and said, here are five complex systems we're gonna focus in on. And it's pretty clear cut, education and education equity, health and health and well-being, environmental and climate justice, an inclusive economy, and then this other bucket of race and justice that includes the courts, criminal justice reform, and what's connected to that universe. So when you think about those five catalytic complex systems, that's how we're going to get to racial equity, if you will, because if you get those things right, you achieve a level of racial equity that makes sense. And then, of course, the wraparounds are civic engagement, so voting, and supportive policies and institutions, basically making sure that government is working for all people in all communities. And so that's how folks can get involved is by looking at it through that lens of those systems and that framework. And it's basically keeping democracy alive. Thank you, thank you, thank you. <laughs> like All of those things are under attack right now. And I think that's where a lot of the cynicism comes from is that we are seeing this constant attack. When you're seeing this constant attack by a lot of places, especially the MAGA Republicans, um, do you have advice for people about not stepping back and staying engaged? Well, one of the things that 
you know, I would argue our organization is crystal clear on is that we are nonpartisan, but we're not blind. And so if you think about any community member, whether you're a parent, a single individual trying to make ends meet, when you look at what's happening in your community and who's ultimately responsible, the goal is to make sure that you keep that, that connectivity there that says, if I've elected my mayor or my city council member, heck, even if I didn't vote for the person who sits in that seat, they have a responsibility to do some things that takes care of me and my family and my community. And how do you hold them accountable? What democracy is, is just that. The other side, whoever they are, who are trying to prevent folks from being able to participate, prevent folks from having a voice, are really trying to undermine democracy. And so we in our communities are really focused in on how do you ensure that every single individual who has an interest also understands that your interest matters yep. and those who have been elected actually have a responsibility to make sure that they're taking care of you, not just as an individual family or household, but the broader community that you're a part of. And that is a disconnect at times. And yep. that actually is what I think makes politics actually not exciting for most community members because it's like this black box when in fact they work for us. Yes. And, and we have to continue to connect those dots, not in a negative way, yeah. but they work for us. Yes, our elected leaders are elected leaders. So people who are listening, be sure you're registered to vote. Double check your vote. There's been a lot of voter file purges in an ongoing and horrible way. So double check, even if you think you're registered to vote, double check that you still are registered to vote. And then get 5, 10, 15 friends registered to vote along with you. Yes. And then pick your voting walk-up song. Yeah, and, and when you think <laughs> about it, the irony of our democracy is that on one hand, we want everyone who's eligible to participate. But then you have all of these rules and laws, literally community by community, that are a little bit different that make it harder. And so what we have been arguing is that we not only want folks to register to vote and to participate, but also work to make sure that the rules are changed so that it's sensible. Mm -hmm. During COVID-19, people were able to vote by Dropbox. That actually made sense and it worked. But now there's this group of folks who says, let's take that away and go back to the days of old. Why? Folks were able to vote by mail, no fault absentee, because you're at home. And in the case of COVID, some folks were stuck at home, safe at home. And now there's this other side that says, oh, don't vote by mail anymore. Let's take that away. When we start to look at the pragmatism and what makes it easy for eligible voters to actually participate, we also want to keep that as a part of the discussion in the DNA so that we are making it easy to participate in this democracy to be a beacon to the rest of the world. And listeners, I have a hint. If you see individuals, elected leaders, organizations trying to make more voter laws that are actually voter suppression laws, then you should ask yourself the question, do they think they cannot win without pushing people out of being able to vote? Like what you're seeing when we see these voter suppression laws or these voter rules is people trying to game the system, yes. right? They're trying to game the system. They're trying to choose who can vote and who can't vote. And usually there is a racist, sexist underpinning of those laws of who can vote and who can't vote, including in the whole United States of American history. So exactly. it is very important when you see people saying, oh, I'm trying to make your voting safer. That's not what's happening, people. We have really, literally no recorded happenings of overvoting in the United States of America. <laughs> that is not a thing. Exactly. Many of us spend like at least, you know, 
half a year trying to remind people to vote because we actually have low voter participation rates in the United States of America compared to other countries because we have so many barriers to voting. And so if you see something like I'm making your voting safer by, you know, not allowing water bottles in line or not allowing drop boxes or not allowing vote by mail, then you've got somebody who thinks they cannot win if everybody votes. What is your take on that? My, you, you've hit the nail on the head. If a politician is passing a law that says for voters who are stuck in a long line, you cannot actually take or have water brought to you, there's something fundamentally wrong with that. <laughs> yes. Especially in a state like Georgia when it gets really hot or the weather is inclement, having water may keep you in line so that you actually can vote. But yes. then there's another question of why are the lines long in the first place? Exactly. So when we start to look at just this notion of voter participation and voter suppression, we try to really have the dialogue with community members that if it was not important, then they would not be doing all of these yes. things to make it harder to vote and make it tougher to vote. One of the things I heard from one of our members was, you know, I wake up in the morning on Election Day. I have to get to work, take the kids to school. I drive past all of these polling locations, but somehow I have to make it back to the one that's in my neighborhood by a certain time to vote. Why is that? They know exactly who I am. You know, I'm registered as a voter. I live in this city. Why can't I vote through different means in terms of touch points? Exactly. Yep. We make it harder to vote in, in ways that are not pragmatic, and it really is a form of suppression. And so for us, that really turns into the framework. But you're absolutely right. If they want to keep you in line with no water and no food, that's a problem because why wouldn't you not want to make it a positive and pleasant experience to vote? That's what democracy should be about. Exactly. So thank you for all of the work that the NAACP does to make sure that everybody who wants to vote can vote. How can people get involved in those campaigns? Because now I know you listeners, you're probably looking around, you're like, hmm, what's happening in my community? Is somebody trying to pass a law so that I have to jump over 300 you know, hurdles to get to the ballot box? I'm sure there are, actually, because that's happening in every community across the country. When we look at the state legislation that's passing across America, we've seen pretty much every state mm -hmm. having voter suppression laws moving forward. Again, people, there is no recorded pattern of overvoting in the United States of America. It's not a problem that is trying to be solved with this voter suppression legislation. Instead, what it's doing is suppressing the vote. So how can people get involved? Well, there's, there's two ways that people can get involved. I think the easiest way is if you have any type of technology, a smartphone, a tablet, a laptop, a computer, you can go to naacp.org and on our website, you start clicking and looking at the things that you may be interested in in terms of the things that you care about, and there are ways to volunteer. And it's low-hanging fruit in some cases. It may you sign, maybe you sign a petition, but you also can actually sign up to get information on how to join a local unit. That's the second way. If you're a college student, for example, we have volunteers that are organized on campuses. If you live in a county, nine times out of ten, there's an NAACP organized in that county. So if you want to get from behind the computer screen and go into a group with people, you can literally volunteer on the ground, but it's all hyper-local, it's driven by the volunteers, and the agenda, even though I gave a framework earlier, is set by our members. It's set by community members who say, this is what we care about, this is what matters. So visit our website, that's the easiest way to start to get involved, and then you'll see there are just a lot of different ways that you can be engaged, whether it's virtual or in person or a hybrid of both. In closing, we don't have very much time left, but I always like to hear, what is your favorite win? 
Ah, so I'm going to give one that may not seem intuitive, but this Supreme Court has been brutal. Last year with the rollback on choice, this year with the affirmative action decision, the Supreme Court has been brutal. Now, a win inside of this moment has been the nomination and appointment of Katanji Brown Jackson. Yes. And one of the wins... It's, it's, not a, it's not the biggest win, but we really needed it, was the decision on the Milligan case coming out of Alabama about redistricting. The court actually got it right. And so, again, when you think about the push and pull of hope and policy advocacy, for me, that was a joy because we were worried that we were going to lose. And so that's one of the bright spots, I think, of this year. Thank you so much for being on. Thank you for sharing all that you've shared. Everybody get involved with the NAACP. Stay involved, support. And thank you, thank you, thank you for all you do. No, thank you, Kristen and Moms Rising. We love the work that you all are doing and the partnership we have together. We're really looking forward to fighting for it together to make sure that we're on the right side of right. Us too. Thank you. Thank you. We're going to take a quick break. Don't go away. We'll be right back with our next guest who you don't want to miss. We'll catch you in a flash. We're going to fight for love. With me, Kristen Ralphing Finer, powered by Moms Rising and the Super Rick Smith Show. We are doing a double show today. There you go. Welcome, Rick, to your own show. Thank you for having me. I love being <laughs> on my own show. <laughs> we are joined by a super spectacular, world changing, nation lifting guest, Rana Epstein of Move On. Welcome, Rana. Thank you for having me. What, what a fun, fun day to be together. I'm so excited. So, Rick, you get the first question. Boom. Okay. What do you think of Netroots? What do you, is this the first time you've been here? Is this the? Oh my God! I'm so ashamed to say this is my first <gasps> Netroots Nation. <laughs> Why are you ashamed? Because I should have been here like years and years ago. Uh, it's just been, you know, like every year it happens. I've got some personal commitment or some other conflict I can't move. And this year, when I saw it come out, it's like, oh, I'm gonna do it. So I'm really excited to be here. This is great. Well, we're celebrating you being here because Move On is doing an amazing job engaging people, net roots, grassroots, all the roots. <laughs> What's the latest with Move On? Oh, well, I'm really excited to talk about this because today, uh, was it today? Yesterday, we launched it. We launched our band Bookmobile I State Tour uh, out for the next 10 days. And we're taking our Bookmobile across the country to states that are most impacted by book bands. And we are handing out free banned books so that the people of this country can have access to the richness and the diversity of the experiences and stories that deserve to be heard and understood in this country. Yeah, I was looking at some of the books that you have, and it was basically basically my high school reading list. Yeah. So where were these bands when I was in high school? All right. <laughs> no books at all. Yeah. No, no, no. Yeah. I had to read all of them, so I'm looking at this. It was kind of a moment of nostalgia. This is my reading list. We're banning my teenage years? Yeah, or... Uh, the Shel Silverstein Lights in the Attic, all those poems that like got me excited about poetry when I was a young kid, or To Kill a Mockingbird. Actually, the, okay, my favorite band book, because I hate it so much, is Catcher in the Rye. I hated it in high school, but I still value the fact that I was asked to read it and read something that maybe I wouldn't have normally read, yeah. and it gave me an understanding of someone else's experience in life. Every, been... Everyone identifies with the Holden Caulfield. I, you know, yeah. Again, my high school reading list. Yeah. There have been so many studies saying that it's actually reading 
and reading more than one paragraph that you'd see on Instagram or one line that you'd see on Twitter that actually builds that compassion in your body, in your soul. And honestly, compassion helps build democracy. So you talked about the books that you are happy that were maybe banned, that, you know, happy, <laughs> sad, happy sad, happy sad, happy <laughs> sad. What are your favorite books? Oh, um, you know, you know, a book that had a profound um, impression on me was The Color Purple. Uh, and I read it, I believe, I was in high school. And yes, there's some stuff. There is some not beautiful stuff in that book. And I was raised in a very safe, uh, loving home. I didn't feel physically threatened. We were upper middle income. Um, my dad worked out of poverty. My mom was an immigrant from another country here. And I read this book, and you know, you read about slavery and all of that in your history books. But this gives it color um and it gives it color in terms of that in ways that my nobody could have explained to me it really you have to understand it in a book and it shifted my worldview and realizing this this world is complicated there are dark things about it there's be, there are beautiful things about it but in terms of what you said Kristen, compassion compassion most of all in understanding oh People have completely different lived lives, completely different experiences, and we have to understand that if we're trying to build a multiracial democracy that works for all of us, there has to be room for people that, for all of us and all of our different experiences. And to walk in one another's shoes yeah. by reading a book. We yeah. never truly walk yeah. in one another's shoes, but a book is sometimes as close as we but can But maybe get. just understanding someone. Look, I yeah. tell the story all the time. I grew up a, uh, as a minority in a minor, minority community. Mm -hmm. I was the white kid in the black neighborhood. And we mm -hmm. played this neat game called Ch Chase the White Kid and Beat the Crap Out of Him. But, you know, it was, again, you know, part of that lived experience. And, and through reading and through education, you have an opportunity to, to see what is possible even if you can't see it in your real life yeah so that's kind of where my benefit came from as a as a kid growing up because you know all we saw was was despair and, and and violence and poverty but there the idea that there was a better world out there that was important to me so to see this idea that we're, we're going to somehow not allow kids to to, to to see all these things and, and understand them is, is kind of scary as a parent Yes. Now, I do, I'll be honest, you know, I, I want to control some of the things that my kids do see and help them in the journey, but I don't want to shield them off completely. There are bad things that go on in this world. Yeah. And they do need to know how to navigate that. And we need to make sure history doesn't repeat. So we have to understand our history, the negative and the positive, to make sure the negative doesn't repeat. But this brings yeah. us to something really important for you. Mm -hmm. And that is Rick's talking about the future that we can build together. Move On also has a very strong Futuristic policy. Futuristic. Yeah, I like that. Future building. <laughs> Very Ray Bradbury-ish. Awesome. Sci what are the top policy priorities? Policy priorities or yes. parties? Priorities. priorities. Okay. <laughs> oh, we can also have a party. Yeah. Oh, I mean, right now we are laser focused and getting ready for the 2024 presidential election. So I'll just bring it back to book bans a bit. Like, we're talking about the beauty of books and what's in them, but... The dark side of this whole campaign is the reason why we're launching it. You know, Governor Ron DeSantis has banned more than 500 books in the state of Florida. It's like the ban man. But it's not just him. It's this group, Moms for Liberty, parading as a parent rights group, which is really like a white nationalist group. group Maniacs quoting, for misery. Yeah, that, that is great. Quoting of, 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 of all people, Hitler, in their um, newsletters, uh, but there are bans all across this country, and 
they kind of snuck up on us and all of a sudden proliferated. And folks don't want to take it anymore. Our millions of members were like, enough. And when we had this idea of a banned bookmobile, it just caught fire. And so people are fired up. And to, to not just make sure folks have access to the richness in, in books, but to make sure that we keep this MAGA Republican Party at bay and we don't allow them to get any more governing power. In fact, we got to claw back the power they've had. Right. Um, and that's what's important. Is like, it's not just about book banning. That's not just what this is about. It's what that represents and symbolizes and the agenda that they're driving. So move on for 25 years. We're 25 years old, guys. It's our 25-year anniversary. But we've always been a bulwark of the radical right. We're not going to stop anytime soon. Unfortunately, we can't. <laughs> it is necessary to keep doing this important work. So winning political power and ensuring that people get elected that believe in popular multiracial democracy and that we should have an arena where we contest for ideas, but ultimately that this country is ours to govern. That's super important. And right now, that's what's at risk. And that's kind of what the book bans are representing. What I love about the bookmobile idea is it takes me back to when I was a kid because we used to have a bookmobile come through. Mm -hmm. And that's where we ended up getting our, our books as a mobile library. And what I also like about it is you're taking the banned books out to parents so that they're seeing, like when I look at it, as I said at the beginning, that's my high school reading list. Yeah. I don't think I'm damaged by what I read of these banned books. Right. So by taking them out, I think you're taking some of the fear out of it because, you know, I've heard some of the maniac moms for liberty, you know, out there, you know, saying there's all of this graphic stuff and it's pornography and they're feeding and indoctrinating your children by going out and actually talking to parents yeah. and saying this is what it is. I think that's incredibly important and maybe hopefully being able to change the narrative because we inter I interviewed Randy Weingarten yesterday and she said, look, you know, you look at Moms for Misery, there's about 200,000 members. Mm -hmm. You go to the other side where you actually have actual moms who are, who are organizing, there's some 2 million members. So true. And so the true. majority is on the side of we want an education mm -hmm. for our children. We want teachers to be able to be the facilitators of that. And that we love our teachers and we trust them to, to help our kids and help us help our kids as well. Yeah, and the thing about bands is... And, and the concept of choice, which Moms for Misery is, prolifer is proselytizing, supposedly, is when you ban a book, you prevent anyone else from reading it, too. So if Isn't we, that the point? <laughs> I, if we actually want parent, parents to be able to decide what their kids read, the parents need to have access and the ability to choose. Right? Absolutely. And if you're banning, you take away parents' choice. And yep. that's just that's not the country we all want to live in. That's not what America's about. Not at all. Moms Against Liberty are horrible. And we did some polling recently with real moms, real moms who are Democrats, Republicans, Independents, Libertarians, all of them. And they want the freedom to be able to have access to all books. Mm -hmm. They want the freedom to be able to decide what to do with our bodies. They want the freedom to be able to decide how to have families and how to love. There is nothing in the Moms Against Liberty agenda that the real moms of America across the political spectrum actually do want. Right. But what they do want in the polling is a care infrastructure, paid family medical leave for everyone who needs it, child care that's affordable, things like that.
kitchen table issues that are such a critical part of our economy. And so when we look at Moms Against Liberty, we think about, like, well, where do they come from? You know, they only have a couple hundred thousand members compared to our millions. They only have, you know, a couple loud people, honestly, who are yep. quoting Hitler. They got a lot of money. <laughs> they got a lot of money. And they got that money because after Donald Trump lost, Steve Bannon, his strategist-in-chief, said, we are going to get MAGA Republicans back in the White House through the school boards. And they looked at those 76 million mom voters in America, and they said, how can we be the most hateful, the most wedgeful, the most grabbing at voters unfairly? And that's where Moms Against Liberty came from. It's not a grassroots uprising. It is a right-wing extremist tactic to break apart America. It's, and it's the mom's version of the Tea Party. It's yeah. worse than that, honestly. I mean, it's so cynically driven, not by moms. So... Thank I think you. you made a good point, though, both of you did, about there's a small minority on their side driving this, and the only reason they're successful is because we were focused somewhere else, and by the time we woke up, they had gotten all these bands there. But they're way more than us. If we just show up, and if we push back, this is going away. And, and also the media structure. I mean, look, the, yeah. the right has built a, an incredible media empire, an echo chamber, to where you, you've put out this daily dose of outrage candy and this being out there indoctrinating your children yeah. here's this book be afraid um people are gonna gonna take it because they're, they're not hearing the other side which is why again i come back to your bookmobile as as demystifying uh that that fear of going well this is it yeah this is what i'm supposed to be afraid of yeah we're not supposed to be afraid of that speaking of which mm -hmm. if people are listening and many are thank you listeners <laughs> How can they get virtual access to the bookmobile? Can they, like, get on the book ride no matter where they are? And where can they find the bookmobile itself? So if you go to moveonbandbookmobile.com, you can sign up there. Uh, you, there are ways to take action. There are ways to support the campaign. There are ways to know where, where the bookmobile is showing up. I think tomorrow we'll be in Milwaukee. The next day, I can't remember. you got to go to the website. But we're, we're, it's so many cities, I can't keep track. Yeah. So, so are you on the are you are you on the bus? I am on some of the stuff. Are you driving the bus? I, I am not driving the bus, nor should I. <laughs> um, but no, I was I was there at the launch yesterday, and we've got move on staff at all, at all the stops, and we've got uh, champions for books and and to stop book bands showing up with us on the road we've got authors influencers that are supporting the campaign i mean this has sparked something across the country i have i've been the head of move on since late 2019 never have so many people proactively reached out and said how can i help people from all nooks and crannies of you know the cultural uh richness of this country so this is just the beginning and i just want to give a shout out to becky pringle of the national education association and randy weingarten of the american federation of teachers i mean these folks and those those entities have been leading the fight on this for for over a year and it's hard and they're getting a lot of um you know, right-wing pushback right. and conspiracy theories around them, and they're incredible humans, and the teachers they're in these people. institutions are great, and and uh, Move On is coming in now, you know, and we're, we're helping to support all thank, that you've been doing. And thank you. Thank you so much for being on both of our shows. Yay! Thank you, thank you for all you do. <laughs> thank you so much. And I want a book, by the way. I want a banned book. I'll bring, I'll bring you one. Beautiful. Thank Thanks, you. Thank you. Bye. We're live from Netroots. We'll be back in just a bit. Don't go away. Fight for love.
through with me, Kristen Ralph Finkbeiner, powered by Moms Rise, and we are joined by an amazing guest you are going to love, 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 love hearing from, Maurice Mitchell of the Working Families Party. Welcome. It's good to be here. I'm so excited that you're here, and I'm excited that you're here because you have done an incredible amount of work lifting our country and raising not only your voice, but the voices of others. And I heard a rumor that you got started actually in a punk rock band. Is this true? <laughs> I can confirm this. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's right. I, you know, I, um, I have two passions. Um, from when I was very, very young, music and social change. And I've, I pursued those passions with equal relish. Um, my musical aspirations, I think I've come to terms with, like, you know, I'm probably not going to sell out arenas. <laughs> Never give up! <laughs> you, you know, I said probably. There's still a possibility, right? I, I'm there for the possibility. <laughs> um, and I learned so much from my time in the hardcore punk rock scene. You know, that DIY ethic, this idea that you could just, you know, you don't need to go to conservatory. You don't need to have all the formal training. You don't need to um, get signed by a record label. You can start your own record label. You can start a band with, you know, very little sort of formal knowledge. That DIY ethic, I apply it to politics all the time. And I think it's really served me, that idea that, um, you know, your passion is enough to get things moving. Um, it's really, I think, helped me push through some of the formal arrangements in politics and try, I try to really challenge those things. So I still feel like I am applying the punk rock ethic to politics, for sure, and I'm being creative politically. And the other thing that I'm so happy that early on in my life I got an opportunity to do was crisscross this country. Um, and I have such a rich understanding of what America is and isn't, who Americans are and are not. Like I grew up in the suburbs of New York, but I got in a van with a bunch of my friends and we went to every single part of this nation very, very early. And I played shows where every other band was a Christian punk band. And I stayed at the homes of their parents. I've, um, you know, been in I've played shows in Appalachia uh, as a young person in my teens and 20s. And so oftentimes the only black person uh, in, in sight, right? And um, understanding the human condition from different people's perspectives, I think, was a great foundation for the work that I do right now, which is trying to organize the multiracial working class and trying to create the conditions where we understand that we're different and we're not hiding our differences. They're real. Um, but as working people, we have a lot of similarities and a lot of cause to come together. You said a word that I heard and I grabbed onto, and that was creativity. Mm. And when we're working on politics, when we're working on organizing, a lot of people forget that it is such a big creative endeavor. I think of it sometimes as like a painting, and you need to have all the different textures and colors and all the things that separately maybe don't look like they add up into something, but then you put them together and they add up into something awesome. Yeah. Similarly, music, which I cannot play, and I'm so glad you can, <laughs> all the different instruments coming together to create like this beautiful song, this beautiful symphony, this beautiful punk rock experience. That, when you have one instrument alone, doesn't say the same thing in music or art or anything, creativity. Right. But then people come into politics and they're like, okay, sometimes, some people, they're like, okay, 
I'm going to just like do this thing without being creative. And part of being creative is listening yes. and being there in the environment. And can you talk about the creativity of politics and organizing and why that's important? Oh, it's fundamental, right? There's a reason, if you think about it, there's a reason why people organically, um, it's like in our DNA, seek to create, seek to create art. Art is not utilitarian, but you could look at like there's cave drawings, right? So our ancestors didn't have to do that, right? We, we need to eat, we need to find a water so source, we need to find shelter, but there's something innately inside of us that where we, we need to express this untapped sort of passion in our soul as human beings. And politics is a human endeavor. And so it's only natural that in the arena of politics, we would pursue it like an artist, right? Because we're not, you know, politics is, is to me, it's art and science. There is a science to it, right? Like, For sure. You know, um, you need to get to 50% plus one if you, if you need to win. There's like hard math. arithmetic there. <laughs> yes. It is math, right? right? Yes. And, and there's an art, right? And you see it when, when somebody is inspired by somebody's public leadership and their soul stirs and they could recognize true authenticity there. And maybe things aren't as clean as, um, as we might want them. Maybe it's a little messy, but it's authentic, mm -hmm. right? And I always say that people don't necessarily need to or must agree with their political leaders, with candidates, with political organizations, right? And so our job isn't to somehow ensure that people agree with us. Our job is to ensure that people believe in us. And the way that, to me, people are able to believe in you is by you expressing that thing that is uniquely and authentically you. And in some ways, that's what art is, yep. right? And so how can we use politics to articulate a more authentic representation of our aspirations, of our concerns, of our values, of our communities, right? Politics can be that. And that's something that's very exciting. It elicits an opportunity for collaboration. It elicits curiosity. It creates a space for connection, for meaning, for belonging. And I, I look at these things as, as deep social needs. People really need these things, right? There's a reason why solitary confinement is considered torture, right? Because we are so innately social as beings that that we have trouble understanding who we are without the reflection of other beings. And so politics could be a venue, an organic venue, where people could speak the, the poetry of bearing witness and, and also the poetry, the poetry of telling their stories, right? When you tell your story and somebody bears witness, something transformative happens on either side. And politics can be a venue for that. And I think oftentimes we think about politics too often from the frame that I believe the far right wants us to think about politics. The far right wants us to be cynical. Yep. Wants us to think that politics are dirty. So that we don't dare engage that. But you have to wonder, why are they spending so much energy telling the story that politics are dirty, that we should be cynical about politics, that we shouldn't engage politics, but they have their fingerprints all over it. Yep. Right? And so how can we form a new politics that 
brings together the art and science. That's something that I've been asking myself ever since I got into public life. And it's something that I continue to try to challenge the people in my midst at the Working Families Party and others, right? How, how can we do that? When we do do that, and sometimes we see the embers of that, right? We see it occasionally. It's magical, right? Like, I'm sure a lot of people remember, a mo- think about a movement candidate, right? For some people, Bernie was a movement candidate. For some people, um, Obama was a movement candidate. In those spaces, the spaces are almost religious. They're transcendent, right? And they elicit a, a response that isn't by the numbers. It isn't about white papers and policy. It's about the things that are dearest to us. And so it's our job to infuse our political life with, with that which is so human and authentic and real and enticing and attractive so that... So that our politics are irresistible to the multiracial working class. That is a project that the people on the far right, corporations, the already wealthy and privileged, they are so concerned with. If we ever do a really good job of making our politics irresistible to the multiracial working class, it's game over for them, which is why they need to spend so much time and money, billions of dollars, on a, a project, a a propaganda project with their information sort of like infrastructure, the Fox News and the own network, OAN network and, you know, their personalities online spewing the politics of division and hate and demagoguery um, and fear. They understand that that is effective. There's a profit motive in that. There's a entrepreneurial capitalistic sort of like uh, value in having us be in these, these pitch battles. And it dissuades people from engaging in politics in a way that's really transcendent. And so that is our work. That is the work. Absolutely. That is the work. And in the work, we need to all be doing the work. And when we're all doing the work, then we can build that representational democracy, that politics that represents the contributions and the needs. And You've written a lot about organizers yes. and busting myths about organizers. Yes. What are the most important myths that need to be busted about organizers? I love organizers. I want to go on the record. I love organizers. I love politics. I yeah. love art. I love music. I love all of it. Yes, yes. How okay. should we bust those myths? I mean, there's so many, right? We just talked about arithmetic. Organizing is about addition and multiplication, right? Yes. <laughs> and it's, just fun- it's just fundamental, right? And... Um, I see folks using the word organizer and organizing to describe everything, right? And to describe anything that has anything to do with being like, quote unquote, like down and progressive or whatever. And if you're not adding to our ranks, right? If, if you're not building coalitions, if you're not somehow engaging with people and... In, engaging with people that you don't already agree with and doing the work of building relationships across difference and across disagreement and bringing them into a collective project with you, you're not organizing. And, and there's a lot of activity that, um, you know, progressive activity that um, might have some value, might not have some value, but that stuff on its own isn't organizing. You know, so... There's a lot of stuff you could do digitally, right? Um, where you're like shouting, <laughs> shouting into the void very passionately um, and as loud as you can about a point of view. Um, 
that isn't organizing. Um, it might feel emotionally appropriate, and it might be, be exactly what you need to do in that moment. And I can't assess if it's right or wrong, but I can tell you that that's not organizing, right? And so um, I want us to return to the fundamentals of organizing because we need a lot more addition and exactly. multiplication. A lot more addition <laughs> and multiplication. And we need a lot more, a lot more folks who are dedicated to that craft that allows for the additional multiplication. I often talk about the fact that there's like a, a progressive identity that is, um, that is a static sort of um, identity that is not, not active. And that static identity sort of um, will look at a burning building, right? Let's say you're the first person. Like that, that happened to me the other day. I was the first person to see Unfortunately, like a, a car accident, like this, this, um, this sweet little dog got hit. Oh, and I was no. the first person on the site. Mm -hmm. The dog lived. Okay, good. The Thank dog you. lived. I was the first person. And then, you know, without thinking about it, I sprang into action. I was with a friend. We got the dog. We figured out where the closest veterinarian was. We brought the dog to the veterinarian, right? If I had instead said, said I, I just want to let everybody know I was the first person to witness this while the dog is still <laughs> yes, suffering. In the, suffering in the street, right? Yeah. And and then as other people gathered around, I was like, oh, by the way, I was the first. Yep. I saw it. I saw it with my own eyes. And I was more more committed in that moment to identifying myself as like somehow the first to witness the pain, but without any any sort of um, remedies for the pain. That's often what a lot of people who call themselves progressives do about the conditions in our society, right? Good at articulating the conditions, good at kvetching about the, con the conditions, good at like perhaps going on public venues to like um, demonstrate how right you are, how morally right you are about the, about the conditions or how how factually correct you're about the conditions instead of, in the case of the dog, picking the dog up and going to the veterinarian or a burning house, getting a bucket and, and grabbing whoever you're with. It doesn't matter who the person is. It doesn't matter what they believe in. Grabbing them and getting them to get another bucket and, take, and taking out that fire. That is an active protagonist sort of philosophy and an active protagonist identity that I think more of us need to take in this work. The addition and the multipl multiplication so our movement can grow. And there's so many people who need these ideas. And we need to engage them with curiosity, with compassion, and with understanding instead of rebuke because they weren't the first one to witness the action. Bring in that five, ten people in your neighborhood, in your family, in your community. Expand the movement, and you can join the Working Families Party immediately. Absolutely. Go there right now. Yes. Thank you so much for being on. Thank you for all you here. do. Thank you. Take care. Don't go away. We'll be right back after a just quick, quick, quick break. We'll be back in a flash. We're going to fight for love. Breaking through 
here with me, Kristen Raupinkbunner, powered by Moms Rising. We are joined right now by an amazing, spectacular guest you are going to love hearing from, Melissa Botayek of the National Women's Law Center. Welcome, Melissa, to Chicago, to Netroots Nation. If you all hear things in the background, there's a lot going on in the room that we're in. Welcome, welcome. Thank you so much for having me, Kristen. It's so nice to see you. I'm excited, as always, to see you, too. We were just talking about the art of organizing with some other guests on this show, and you're an artist. You're not just a policy change maker. You don't just lift national legislation. You're an amazing painter. How does art fuel political change for you? Ooh, that's a great question. Um, you know, I would say that for me, at least, um, art is a place where I can be really mindful. Um, when I'm doing a painting or when I'm playing music, I'm totally like present and able to sort of be where I am. And I think that when you're connect, being organizing, it's about connecting with people and being able to be present, being able to be creative. Uh, those are things, those are values that sort of cut across the sort of artistic side of my brain and the part of me that loves politics and organizing. What's your favorite artful policy? Ooh. Ooh. Wait, Ooh. What, what is an art? Do I get to define artful yeah, you policy? Yeah, uh, we've never defined it yet in the United States of America okay. that I know of. So we get to define it right now, listeners, you're part of defining it. Oh my gosh, artful policy. Hmm, that's a hard one. I'm going to say, um, you know what? I'm just going to pivot because I don't know what artful policy is. And I'm going to talk about... <laughs> I'm going to talk about how I think that uh, there's a quote I often think about, about how, um, or sorry, it's a cartoon where it's a bunch of women at a museum looking at a painting uh, by sort of a great artist and being like, so, you know, like imagine what would happen if he hadn't had childcare. Mm -hmm. um, and so I think that sometimes we forget that um, historically people can name male artists so easily, but oftentimes it's hard for them to rattle off the name of women artists. And that's just not in the art world. Any kind of professional career, um, you know, there's somebody behind caring for children, caring for elderly, caring for people with disabilities. Um, and so I think that one of the reasons I'm so motivated to work on care infrastructure issues with you, Kristen, and with so many others is because, number one, we don't value care enough in our society, and the caretakers, uh, both paid and unpaid, are really the backbone of our whole society. So every time, next time you go to an art museum, I want you to think about who cared for the kids uh, mm -hmm. of that artist, and hopefully it sparks some uh, engagement for you in the care movement. And who raised that artist? Who raised that who artist? Who raised that artist? We yes. should have a whole campaign. Who raised that artist? I always say that- Where like, are they? What happened? I always say I want a Marvel movie where mm -hmm. a childcare provider is the hero, is the superhero. Yes. Um, because I feel like you watch movies and TV shows all the yes. time, and it's like the kids are just home at the end of the day, but what's happening during the day when they're out saving the world or yes. in car chases or, like, whatever it is? Somebody, at the, if you watch The Incredibles, mm -hmm. uh, you know, like the Jack-Jack, I don't mm -hmm. know if you've seen The Incredibles, mm -hmm. but, like, you know, there's a babysitter who is, like, losing her mind because this kid is, like a superhero kid, mm -hmm. um, but pretty mm -hmm. much like there's always somebody there who has to be doing that really important, valuable, high skill caregiving work for everything else that we see around us to function. And until we value that, we're not gonna have gender and racial equality in this country. For sure. But we're working on it, people. We're working on it. This is a moment of sadness. I always have like a moment of sadness. Childcare workers are some of the lowest paid workers in the United States of America. And people who are unpaid care humans 
also are discriminated against in the paid labor force to the extent that being a mom is now a greater predictor of wage and hiring discrimination than gender. Yep. And because of structural racism, BIPOC moms are earning as low as Latina moms earning 46 cents to a white dad's dollar and black moms just 54 cents to a white dad's dollar. This is not okay, people. This is huge discrimination based on caretaking. And it follows people into the labor force, out of the labor force, all around. And we need to stop it. But we have a plan. We have a plan. We are going to stop it. Yes. And Melissa's going to tell you about the plan. Oh. Melissa, <laughs> talk about, please, with our listeners, what is the plan to save America? Okay, the plan to, well, I don't know about the plan to save America, but part of the plan to save America is to win care infrastructure. And that means that we're going to win child care and early learning. We're going to win paid leave, paid family and medical leave. And we're going to win investments in home and community-based services. And across all of that caregiving, we're going to make sure that the people who do that work, that's the backbone of our economy, are paid good wages. Um, and that is going to have ripple effects beyond just the people immediately affected. Uh, that's going to mean that people are more secure in retirement. We did a study at National Women's Law Center uh, with Columbia University and showed that if you were to invest in high quality childcare for everybody who needed it, you would see those women making have $100,000 more over their lifetime. They'd be more secure in retirement um, and would be closing the racial and gender wealth gap uh, as well. Because as you mentioned, there's uh, black and Latin caregivers in particular make less um, than white women caregivers who are already underpaid. Um, and it is even harder for uh, BIPOC moms to find high quality and affordable care that fits their schedule. Um, and they're more likely to be concentrated in those low paid jobs where they don't have the flexibility uh, to you know, necessarily both either afford or find the care that they need. So all this to say, we're gonna save America by building care infrastructure. And we can't do it alone. No, nothing we can't do alone. It alone. We can't do it alone. We need all of us and then some. So how can people get involved? Like what tactics can listeners use to help build this with us? Yeah, I mean, the only way we win is together. So let's just start with that. Um, I think that we have to start thinking about um, how different communities and different constituencies connect back to the care issues and find those points of overlap. So let's say you're somebody who works on, I don't know, you're a business owner. Like, you need your workforce to have high quality childcare. You need your workforce to be able to have aging and disability care for them to be able to fully participate um, as, you know, as an employee. Let's get you involved. Let's say that you are, I don't know, a teacher. Uh, you know, a lot of times we think about um, education is starting in kindergarten, but really education starts at birth and parents and uh caregivers are children's first teachers. And so how can we make sure kids are more ready and, and some of these inequities that start even before kindergarten? Let's say you work on housing policy. Uh, you know, home-based childcare providers oftentimes are dealing with rising rents. They're yep. dealing with all kinds of sort of uh, barriers to getting licensed because they can't get a license if they're in X zone or Y zone. Like, let's work together on that. So I think part of what we need to do is start stitching together a broader coalition of folks across the progressive movement and beyond who understand how caregiving is absolutely foundational uh, to what they see in the outside world. 
and we're doing it. So how can people join with the National Women's Law Center? That stitching is happening, people. We're stitching every day. How can they stitch with the National Women's Law Center? Well, first go to nwlc.org because you can join our mailing list. We're going to send you action alerts. We're going to send you opportunities for you to weigh in in a timely way with members of Congress. Uh, We have all kinds of resources and information on not just caregiving, but also abortion and equal pay and housing and tax, all those things. Um, And in fact, let me know if you want to nerd out on tax later, Kristen, (laughs) because there's a big tax fight coming up. And this is something else. Like if you're somebody who's focused on economic policy or even just somebody who like struggles to pay your taxes, like this is connected back to care because unless we ask the wealthy and corporations to pay their fair share, we're not going to have the revenues we need to support all these investments. And so I do a ton of work and we at the Law Center do a ton of work on taxes. So please go to our website, sign up for those, um, sign up for those alerts. And then NWLC works in coalition with folks like Moms Rising, with folks like Care Can't Wait, Broader Coalition, woo! Uh, And there's rallies, there are um, bus tours, there's all kinds of sort of specific tactics as opportunities emerge where you can plug in as a grassroots leader. So we encourage you to get on those lists and to join us. Excellent. It's easy, people. It's easy. Just go to nwlc.org. What isn't easy is redoing our tax structure. Yeah. Now, this is important, people, because I'm going to say something very important. We can afford to build a care infrastructure. In fact, we cannot afford not to because in the long run, it's costing us bazillions of dollars to not have a care infrastructure. It's pushing people out of the labor force. It's causing supply chain issues. It's hurting our international competitiveness, according to the Federal Reserve Chair. There's a lot of problems because we don't have a care infrastructure. And so it is penny wise and pound foolish to not change our tax structure. How can we do this change of our tax structure, Melissa? Okay. Well, first, I just want to affirm what you said. We can absolutely afford to do all of the things and more. Uh, If you go to nwlc.org backslash TTP, that stands for Tax the Patriarchy. Woo! Uh, Yes. uh, We have a cool tool where you can pick how you want to tax the rich, and then you can go shopping. You can buy Mm. childcare. You can Mm. get the child tax credit. Mm. You can get money for historically-backed colleges and universities. You can just go, and you can realize, wait a minute, like in the words of Taylor Smith, Taylor Swift, this is why we can't have nice things. It's because we haven't taxed the patriarchy. And you yes. can see all the things that we can afford if we just uh, made ask the wealthy and corporations to pay their fair share of taxes, which, by the way, is super politically popular across parties. Yes. Um, and so we need to build the power to make Congress do it. Um, in terms of how to do it, there's a big fight coming up next year because those Trump tax cuts, uh, the, the Trump tax scams, as we call it, uh, that were passed in 2017, those uh, most of those provisions are set to expire in 2025. And there's a conversation beginning now about whether or not those tax cuts, which primarily benefited the richest people in this country who did not need them and whose wealth has grown exponentially since they have passed, about whether we should keep doing that. I don't think we should keep doing that. And if you agree, there's going to be a very big tax fight where we need the gender justice movement, we need the care movement, we need every single progressive movement across the board to show up and understand that connection back to taxes. And taxes are great. Sometimes taxes get they kind get a of bad a rap. bad... They're so fun. Yeah, but yes. they're great. Like, I like to flush my toilet. Mm-hmm. That is excellent. Taxes help me do that. I enjoy also turning on the lights, having schools, driving on roads, being able to call the fire department should I accidentally set something like 
like my spaghetti on fire. Yes, I've done that before. Mm -hmm. I did not know spaghetti was flammable. It is. I have done that too. I yes. Yes. As I did not know we were talking about that experience today, but yes, I have done that as well. Yes. Clean drinking water, you know, all of these things. Clean air. Like all, all you know, all the things that you need to like live a high quality life, you need public investment. Yes, absolutely. So we have about a minute and a half left. Oh my goodness. Only a minute and a half left. What is bringing you hope? What is bringing me hope? Um, I will say, besides my beautiful children, um, I will say that what's bringing me hope is the coalition work. Um, you know, sometimes it can be very hard to work on these issues, but I think sometimes we don't celebrate our wins enough and we don't really think about the ways in which we have change the narrative. I was talking uh, to someone the other day and we were saying how a few years ago we won a uh, increase in childcare investments that was by today's standards and the wins we've had recently not that big and we threw a huge party. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and then you know we didn't get childcare um, or the care infrastructure pieces and build back better but we had enormous wins on relief for COVID. We foundationally changed the narrative in this country about the importance of care. We built a really strong and powerful coalition, I think we need to find joy and celebrate those wins. And I think we need to like link our arms with our coalition partners because that's how we build power. That's how we win. And that's what gives me hope. That gives me hope too. I am so hopeful. And I love working in coalition together with the Care Can't Wait community. So people who are listening, don't only sign up and join the National Women's Law Center. Care Can't Wait. Also, follow the Care Can't Wait hashtag on Twitter, on whatever platform you're on, Instagram, all the platforms, and get involved and stay involved. And you can stay involved with all of us. And because we are not giving up, people. We are not giving up. So thank you so much for being on, Melissa. Thank you. Oh. Thank you for all you're doing. And listeners, yes, I did just look at the clock and go, oh, I actually have one more minute than I thought. Yes! <gasps> we have one more minute. So if you heard that, listeners, that was an exciting moment for me and Melissa where I was like, oh, read the clock. Are wrong. we going to have a pun off? I don't know. Oh, what's your what favorite pun? Yeah. Oh, oh my Melissa's God, also like... very good at puns. <laughs> what's your favorite pun of the week? Oh, my gosh. What is my favorite pun of the week? I will say... Um, my my children uh, told me that they didn't want to drink milk anymore, and I said it was utterly ridiculous. <laughs> Dad jokes. Yay. I have a joke like that. What did the lettuce say at the door? Um, let us in? Yes. Or See? I remain outside. Oh. Ooh. 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 I'm kaling it. You oh. are totally kaling it. You're kaling it. Okay, people, okay. if you want to get involved with the National Women's Law Center, just know they are punny and effective yes. if you want to laugh and make big change national women's law center is for you thank you so much for being on melissa bye thanks well that's it for our show today thanks so much for tuning in as we tackle the top topics facing our nation in a way that requires the most boring disclaimer in the history of the planet earth here goes views expressed on this show are those of the individual speakers and should not be attributed to moms rising to this station or to any news or social media service that may disseminate a recording of the show to the public or to any segment of the public Boom, we'll catch you next week. We're gonna fight for love.